الجزيرة بودكاست Canada is doing something it's never done before. The federal government is launching a new effort to tackle anti-Muslim hate. It has just named the country's first representative on combating Islamophobia. In January of 2023, Amira Al-Gawabi was announced as the country's first special representative on Islamophobia. This position is one that came about through the support and advocacy of Muslim communities and their allies to address a painful, even deadly reality of Islamophobia in this country. So what's behind the need for the position in the first place? Canada's Muslim population has been subject to a wave of hate attacks over the last several years. Some of them have been deadly. And it's led to questions about how Muslims in Canada are treated by their government. Here's how a Canadian sociology professor puts it. We can't fall back on Canada's multiculturalism and Canadian exceptionalism. The roots of Islamophobia here are very much homegrown. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Today, we're bringing you an episode from January 2022. For a lot of people in Canada, the scale of the country's Islamophobia problem became clear in 2017 after a shooting at a Quebec mosque. It was the deadliest attack on a house of worship in Canada's history. You're looking live at Quebec City this morning. The scene of something unprecedented in this country. We have never seen anything like it in Canada. Al Jazeera online editor Gillian Kessler-Damore has been covering the aftermath of the massacre since it happened. The Quebec City mosque attack took place shortly after evening prayer on January 29th, 2017. Uh, a gunman stormed into Quebec City's largest mosque, the Quebec Islamic Cultural Center, and opened fire in the main prayer room. Six Muslim worshippers were killed. Five others were seriously injured in the attack, which lasted less than two minutes. For the five-year anniversary of the attack in 2022, Gillian traveled from Montreal to Quebec City to speak with community leaders and survivors. One of those survivors was Hakim Shambaz. It certainly affects us. We can't hide that. It's something we'll live with all of our lives. It's a reality. We have to live with it. Mr. Shambaz told me how he was in that main prayer room when the shooting started. It was panic. The killer entered the mosque and started shooting. People were running in all directions to try to find a way out. There were images I'll never be able to forget because I literally witnessed the execution of four brothers inside the mosque. During the shooting, he noticed a young girl frantically looking for her father. He scooped her up into his arms and he hid her behind a post that he was hiding behind with two other worshippers. So he received the Medal of Bravery for that action, for saving that young girl's life. They were just two of the more than 50 worshippers at the mosque that night. Another was Muhammad Khabar. He was shot twice, 
once in the knee and once in the foot, where he still has bullet fragments. Jillian spoke with him as well. I didn't hide. I said to myself, what is he doing, this terrorist? What is he doing? He talked about what it was like to be in that room when the gunman entered and started firing and the sense of chaos that was all around him. He said he was kind of frozen in place. He didn't move. He didn't run as the the shots were ringing out. And, and he thought to himself, you know, that this would maybe be it. These were potentially his final moments. I don't have many dreams, but all the dreams I do have, there is always someone who is about to shoot, and I'm trying to do something. Like in the attack that happened here, I tried to do something. In my head, it's always, maybe if I do this, I will be able to do something. I can stop the assailant. But the attack is always there. For Mohamed Khabar and for other survivors and other community members in Quebec City, this really is part of the problem. This, this lack of acknowledgement uh, that Islamophobia exists and needs to be confronted. Islamophobia exists everywhere. We can't hide it. It's like trying to hide the sun. You can't hide it. The sun exists. It's like Islamophobia exists. But in 2017, in the wake of the attack, a pretty contentious conversation about Islamophobia became a focal point in Canada. To break it down, I spoke with someone who's been studying Islamophobia for decades. My name is Jasmine Zine. I'm a professor in sociology and religion and culture at Wilfrid Laurier University, and I live in Toronto, Ontario. I want to start back in 2017. After the Quebec mosque attack, there was a fierce debate in Canada's parliament over a motion condemning Islamophobia, something called Motion 103. What did that debate look like? What do you remember from that time? Well, just to provide a little bit of context about Motion 103, it was a non-binding resolution in Canadian Parliament that called on the government to condemn Islamophobia and all forms of systemic racism and religious discrimination. The motion was introduced in December of 2016 by a Muslim member of Parliament, Ikra Khaled. But the debate over it took on a whole other tenor after the shooting in Quebec. There was a virulent backlash. It was a way to try and discredit Islamophobia and to stop attempts to address and challenge it. One of the most disturbing elements of that time was the fact that Iqra Khalid received over 50,000 emails in response to the introduction of the motion. And many of those emails involved overt discrimination, threats of of, uh, sexual violence and other kinds of threats. Khaled read some of those threats against her out on the floor of the House of Commons. Kill her and be done with it. I'm not going to help them shoot you. I'm going to be there to film you on the ground crying. Why don't you get out of my country? You're a disgusting piece of trash, and you are definitely not wanted here by the majority of actual Canadians. I can't say that I was surprised entirely. I think the scope of it and the sheer amount of it was staggering. But, you know, I've been studying Islamophobia for about 20 years. And so I've been aware of the kind of backlash that's out there and the kind of anti-Muslim sentiments, conspiracy theories, discourses and so on. When I've gotten hate mail myself, although nothing of that caliber of 
direct threats and sexual violence and so on, which is just horrific. So it was terrible to see someone being targeted as a Muslim woman putting forward a motion which was otherwise widely supported. It alerted us to the fact that not only had we witnessed this horrible terror attack against the mosque at the hands of a white nationalist, but we are seeing uh, similar kinds of sentiments being expressed in the public sphere in a variety of different ways. And so that was something that was very troubling. The motion eventually passed, a couple months after the shooting. And several months after that, it led to a parliamentary report which made 30 recommendations. And only two of those recommendations referenced Islamophobia. Mm, Wow. So, you know, Islamophobia became very much a footnote. But that changed in June of 2021. We begin with breaking news in what the mayor of London, Ontario, is calling an unspeakable act of hatred. A Pakistani Muslim family went out for a stroll, as many do during the pandemic, just to get some fresh air. And they were mowed down by a truck and four members of that family were killed. And so that also took place at the hands of someone who expressed white nationalist sensibilities. So that brought home the fact that within the span of four years, we were facing yet another deadly attack of Islamophobic violence against uh, Muslim Canadians. It was the worst attack against Canada's Muslim community since the shooting at the mosque in Quebec. But it wasn't the only one. Police have made an arrest in connection to a stabbing death of a volunteer caretaker at a Rexdale mosque. At least nine incidents in the last nine months have been reported in the Edmonton area. Disturbing physical and verbal assaults directed mainly at Black Muslim women wearing a hijab. According to Statistics Canada, hate crimes motivated by religion fell by 7% overall in 2019, but hate crimes against Muslims rose by 9%. I've talked to Muslim women who wear the niqab, and even prior to this, they have told me about how when they're in the subways, they feel very vulnerable and they'll always stand, you know, near the wall, not over close to the tracks because they're afraid somebody might push them. Especially since the London terror attack, sometimes I'm out and I'm driving and I see Muslim women who wear hijab walking, and I'm fearful for them, you know? Um, And I myself used to wear hijab uh, for about 17 years. I don't anymore, but I know the difference in that feeling of vulnerability and having to deal with the meanings that people attach to your bodies and how they read your bodies and how they react to you on the basis of that. And so there is a real impact on Muslim communities and how they feel their safety is imperiled within the nation. And yet most emphasis of the security policies and and communities in Canada have focused on Muslims as a threat, not Muslims as victims of violence. So after the attack in London, Ontario, the Canadian government pulled together this emergency summit on Islamophobia. It took place in July of 2021. What was your reaction when you heard about it? Well, I was invited to speak at the summit and it came together fairly quickly. And it was really unfortunate that it was held during Eid al-Adha, which is the most important sort of Islamic religious holiday. 
I doubt very much that any other government-sponsored community event would be held on Christmas or other religious holidays. Which, fittingly, is, is why you opened your address with that remark. Walk me through that moment when you get this invitation to speak. You hear there's an emergency summit. It's a long time coming. You have to decide what you're going to do about it. Those who were invited to speak were given five minutes. So you really had to consider the message that you wanted to to give in this forum. Now, I have to say there were MPs there and actually Justin Trudeau was at the event as well. And so as we were speaking, he had been listening uh, to what we were saying. And, you know, one of the things that I said at the summit was that I have been at these tables presenting to the Canadian government since after 9-11 and the Islamophobic backlash against Muslims that was happening in Canada, then after the Quebec City mosque shooting and parliamentary hearings on M103 and online hate. And now I'm here again, sitting at this summit after the London terror attack. And I made it clear that I don't want to sit at tables like this again because Islamophobia was not taken seriously in the first place. You mentioned Justin Trudeau was there. Did that give you at least a little bit of confidence in the impact and potential effectiveness of this summit? I I was impressed that he stayed for the majority of the summit to listen to what people had to say. I never thought that was a guarantee of action. We don't know how much of politics is window dressing, right? And how much of it is to elicit votes in, in the upcoming election, which was just a few months away. I did appreciate that he did attend and did listen and he you know, made some comments at different points as well. I'm here to listen to you on what our next steps should be to continue building a country where everyone is welcome, safe, and respected. This is not your burden to carry alone. As a society, this is everyone's responsibility to take on. When I spoke to Jasmine in 2022, she was still waiting for some kind of action. Some of them, I think, were a little more, you know, rehearsed and others that seemed fairly heartfelt. However, the proof is in the pudding. And we have been waiting several months for some sort of recognition that this summit took place. And I think, you know, there should be some indication by now as to how the government plans to prioritize attention to combating Islamophobia in Canada. Jasmine says this has been kind of a theme in her line of work. We are constantly singing for our supper, constantly having to put all this information and evidence forward for it to only fall on on deaf ears. And that's not just on the federal level. It's something she's seen play out locally, too. Here in Ontario, when the current government came in, it dismantled all the subcommittees of Ontario's anti-racism secretariat. And at the time, I was the co-chair of the Islamophobia subcommittee, and all the work we'd been doing for the previous two years came to nothing. Uh, Literally overnight, the committees were disbanded. And now, after the London terror attack, the same government has given funding to some community groups to combat Islamophobia. So there's a hypocrisy to this. You know, Islamophobia has to reach deadly proportions before there is any action. What would it mean for Canada to take Islamophobia seriously? What do you think that would actually look like? One of the things I found in my study on the Islamophobia industry is that Islamophobic hate is being monetized. 
And we need the government to fund anti-Islamophobia campaigns to counter these movements, right? So they need to monetize and put resources behind combating Islamophobia. Jasmine says there's something else the government could do too. As much as we talk about Islamophobia and how it is being promoted and enacted and often in violent ways from the far right, white nationalists and so on, there is what I call liberal Islamophobia, which I think is far more impactful. We have governments, like in Canada, that are promoting values of diversity, equity, inclusion, multiculturalism on one hand, but then on the other hand are enacting anti-Muslim policies. Jasmine says that includes federal policies taken in the name of security that often target Muslims, things like no-fly lists. And then there are local policies around religious clothing, like Quebec's highly controversial Bill 21, which says public employees in positions of authority can't wear religious symbols, like a headscarf. The grade three substitute teacher named Fatima Envari was expelled from her school because she wouldn't take off her hijab. In Quebec, that's illegal. And so the government has to take seriously the fact that you you cannot have it both ways. You cannot promote multiculturalism, religious pluralism, diversity, equity, inclusion, and then on the same time have policies that are actually targeting particular groups for their faith and background. So often, outside of Canada, when I tend to report on incidents or even attacks like this, the response I get from people is surprise. People don't realize these kinds of things happen in Canada and don't realize these kinds of problems exist. Why do you think that is? When I speak internationally about Islamophobia in Canada, people are surprised because their idea of Canada is this sort of multicultural bastion of inclusion, of welcoming refugees and immigrants and newcomers. There's a complete erasure of Canada's history, its colonial history, and uh, that was built on white settler colonialism. Even Canada's immigration history was based on different policies of racial exclusion. And people are not generally aware that a lot of Canadians are not necessarily aware of some of these aspects of our history because they are somehow behind this smokescreen of multiculturalism. And so it is harder for people to imagine that Canada is a country where you could have these horrific attacks at a mosque against a a family taking an evening stroll. You know, Islamophobia has no borders. And we need to look at how the global networks of Islamophobia are operating and how that affects our local condition as well. And that's The Take. This episode was updated by Nagin Oliai and Ashish Malhotra. The original production team included Nagin Oliai, Tom Finton, Ruby Zaman, Amy Walters, Alexandra Locke, Priyanka Tilvey, Nay Alvarez, Stacey Samuel, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Adam Abugad and Munira Altosari are our engagement producers. Alexandra Locke is the Take's executive producer, and Nay Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.